What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 64 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise. Kind of sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh. And as ever, I'm joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. You all right, mate? How are you? Can't complain at all, my friend. Uh, busy as ever, but can't complain at all. How about yourself? Busy as ever as well, mate. Uh, but working towards this podcast, mate, we've got a right show today. I'm buzzing for this one. Yeah, it's really exciting ahead. We are a fortnightly rock and metal podcast, as I mentioned, sponsored by Stereo Brand Records. We're available wherever you listen to podcasts, including YouTube, wherever you are hearing us. If you could please subscribe slash follow, depending on the service that you're using, that would be amazing. And it's absolutely the best way to support the show. The last episode that we did was basically just a pure review of the new While She Sleeps album, Sleep Society. Uh, you can still check that out now. So usually we do fortnightly episodes when there's a big album coming out. We do do weekly ones as well, just to talk about specific items. Uh, and that was one that we really, really enjoyed doing. Uh, that album doesn't come out until when this gets released until Friday. So you can go back and listen to that episode if you want to figure out and hear uh, what our details and thoughts were on Sleep Society. Uh, for this week's episode, We've got the news to talk about. We've got a review of Cannibal Corpse's Violence Unimagined, a review of Holding Absence, new album, The Greatest Mistake of My Life. Plus, I did a Chris Meets with Henrik and Pontus from Swedish death metal band Horndal. Um, just a little bit of information on them. Horndal is actually the name of a smallly populated town in Sweden that in the 1970s, had a population of about a thousand people and there was a massive steel mill that about half the population of the town worked in. That was then closed down uh, by a big corporation. The members of Horndale, two brothers, Henrik and Pontus, their father and mother starred in a play run by the people of the town of Horndale about the closure of the steel mill. And Henrik and Pontus's dad played the devil quote-unquote, in the play that came in and forced the mill to close down. So they've made this band named after the, this town in Sweden that they grew up in. And their latest album, Lake Drinker, which came out Friday the 9th of uh, April on Prosthetic Records, is about Google coming into the town, buying 100 acres of the land, 100 acres of the land deforesting all the trees, and basically planning to build a huge service centre there that they're going to have to use the local lake in Horndale to cool down the PCs, etc., and the server rooms in the building. So basically, Lake Drinker, their new album, is an attack on capitalist society. So I was all in, Sam. I mean, I, <laughs> I've been listening to this album for a few weeks, and I thought it's really great. Hard-hitting death metal, brilliant um, kind of... Slow, kind of a like a, a slower entombed, really, really good stuff. And my interview with Henry Compontus will be at the end of this show. And it's a really fascinating interview about the town Horndale and their experiences there and what it's like now going back and thinking about the town and discussing the thoughts on Google take, trying to take over the world, basically. So really interesting stuff. So make sure you stick around at the end of the episode for that. We wanted to mention, Sam, before we actually got on with the show, because a few people have mentioned this to us over the last couple of weeks. We are aware that Sam's audio, for whatever reason, does occasionally drop in volume. We have no idea why. Sam, I'm sure you'll agree with me that neither of us are brilliant when it comes to technology. So we can't quite figure out what the reasons behind that are. In about four to six weeks when when they're basically as soon as it's legally possible me and sam will be filming the shows and we'll be sitting in the same room recording them 
So those audio issues will hopefully completely dissipate then. Or no, not hopefully, they will completely dissipate by then. And until that point, we're just going to keep our fingers crossed that they happen as little as usual. Sorry, as little as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of disappointed that the router seems to kick out every time I'm making a really good point. Or at least it feels <laughs> like I am. Uh, there's like a conspiracy going on here. Um, but yeah, um, obviously when we're back in the room, we can sort of start attacking these issues um, head on. We're obviously incredibly sorry for that taking place. I'm personally as disappointed as, as, as anyone who's listening um, that, 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 that this is taking place. But we are working as much as we can to fix it and try and get around it. And the moment we can be in the same room together, then that's exactly what we'll do in the hope of increasing the quality of the podcast. So yeah, um, just bear with us on that one. It doesn't, from what I've listened back, it doesn't happen all the time. It just happens occasionally. Although that's still not good enough. We don't like that. But basically there's two options for me and Sam. We are currently recording through Zoom, which is where we are experiencing the kind of dropouts for Sam. Me and Sam have had conversations on Skype over the last couple of weeks with something else that we've got going on. And Sam's audio never drops. But the problem with using Skype is that when we used to use Skype, the way you record an MP3 on Skype, I come out of one earphone and Sam comes out of the other. I personally think that sounds worse than what we've got at the moment, which is both earphones being used, but Sam's audio just drops occasionally. I, I think this is still better, personally. Yeah, it is, it is better because otherwise, if you're, you're listening with one earphone, then it's just like a very weird person talking to themselves. Um, and responding animatedly to questions that either couldn't be heard or couldn't be answered. Um, so this is the best This is the best way we can do it right now. And we are three episodes away, there or thereabouts, from having a hopefully completely clean-cut audio circumstance. We're going to kick on with the news, Sam. Yeah. Um, did you see much of the Lil Nas X shenanigans that sent conservative Christian Twitter and Facebook, it should be said, into complete meltdown. I did, yeah. I was sort of following it from a distance. Yeah. Um, quite quite, quite enjoyed it from, from, a, from a safe space, actually. So for those who aren't aware, uh, Lil Nas X is an American rapper. He made, basically, with, in association with a company called MSCHF, which I can only assume is mischief, but just abbreviated down, there was a collaboration between the two of them and they made something called Satan Shoes. They're a variation of Nike Air Max 97s, which are, are, were apparently going to be made to include an actual drop of human blood in the soles. They had a devilish insignia hanging off the laces and only 666 pairs of the shoes were going to be made at just over $1,000 a pop. Uh, Nike sued Mischief, the company, and the trainers have been blocked from sale. Um Sam, I mentioned that conservative Twitter went into meltdown because it wasn't just the Satan shoes. These trainers were released alongside uh, Lil Nas X's new track, Montero, uh, in Indices, Call Me By Your Name, in which the video features him pole dancing on his way down to hell in knee-high boots and giving a lap dance to the devil, uh, which is, Sam, seriously the most metal thing that's happened in decades, is it not? Oh, this is absolutely fantastic. Uh, yeah. If Little Nas was around in 1975, he'd be in Black Sabbath. Yeah, legitimately. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm I'm perfectly I'm perfectly for it. <laughs> I just I'm just so, I'm such a pro <laughs> of this. I'm so so into it. Well, this is what I was gonna say. You know, Nike have sued Mischief and blocked the trainers from actually getting out there into hands. You know, are they stopping freedom of expression here? 
No, it's 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 copyright. All they care about is the fact that someone's ripping off their shoes. Well, yeah, um, I mean, like obviously, in terms of fact, it's got the Nike logo on. But what I mean is, I feel like if there was no mention of Satan slash the devil or no kind of inferences to the devil on these trainers, and Lil Nas X was going to give them a cut. I don't know this, but I would like to assume that Nike would probably happily take that cut. But I feel like Nike's problem is that they're now being associated with the devil when they don't want to be. Um, and so that's why I ask, is this a blockade of freedom of expression as opposed to company um, wanting copyright laws put into uh, enforcement? I think that's an interesting point of view. I think if Nike were involved in this early, I think they'd just pass through. Uh, Nike, Nike are very, 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 very clear on their public image. Um, they've recently dropped um, Deshaun Watson, who's an NFL quarterback who's undergoing investigation for sexual conduct. And while nothing's got to court, they've Nike already dropped him before the NFL have even suspended him. Nike, like we're out. Um, so that gives you an that gives you an insight into how quickly they are very clear on continuing their PR image. And while Christian conservatives are not great at basketball, I imagine that Nike still want them to buy their shoes. So yeah. that that is probably. Probably where it's coming from. That being said, Nike have also had instances where they have sided with an athlete or star that is appeared to be "quote unquote" rebellious. Great point. For the sake for, for the sake of selling their own product. So, for mm-hmm. example, um, Michael Jordan's first Air Force Ones were banned by the NBA. So Nike released a pair of them called the OG Band in 1985, and they're sold by the bucket load. Um, when Dion Sanders, who was an NFL cornerback and a baseball player who was attempting to do the two things at the same time, um, Nike made stacks and stacks of money selling his primetime trainers um, while using his bad boy image to insert into the logo. So Nike, Nike are not strangers to the idea of chasing rebellion. However, um, I think there's obviously a difference for a Nike PR executive from sporting rebellion you know, like, oh, those trainers are not welcome in the NBA to what Little Nas is doing. He's probably a little bit um, more hard hit into an American um, culture. So yeah. um, I, I think that they, they've drawn a line somewhere and somewhere between devilish insignia and human blood is probably where that line has been drawn. Um, but I think the real issue, if I'm being cynical, is that Nike didn't get a cut or weren't communicated with this properly. Because I think if someone sat down with Nike and said Little Nas is going to make Nike trainers, that are going to have like red and black and stuff. And I could say, all right, cut the human blood and we'll go 50-50. I think that conversation would have happened. But I think it all originates from the fact that the executives at Nike feel that they've been ignored and essentially being like, you know, being ripped off, aren't they? And I think that's the bigger annoyance than irritating um, human uh, Christian conservatives because also Nike um, have sponsored Colin Kaepernick. I was going to bring this up. I was going to bring this up. after you got kicked out of the NFL, and that was also at the behest of flag um, praying, army, army respecting, <laughs> saluting white, um, red blooded American voters, of which I am also sure those same Americans dislike Little Nas. I was just a guess though, but I, I would assume that there's a lot of those groups that are meeting up in the same bars. Um, so Nike has got a history of this. I really actually think it's about the money. Well, I didn't want to make this sound like I was kind of pointing the finger at Nike because I actually thought that 
the campaign they run with Colin Kaepernick was really great. Actually, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. That that Agreed. video that Agreed. they did that included Colin and and basically all forms of athletes from all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds and you'll have to remind me, Sam. Were there some um, dis, uh, disabled people that were that were included in the video as well? Um, I can't I remember. Think so. exactly. I think it was it was it was I think it was like a general video of which included Colin Kaepernick about fighting struggle. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. I can't remember the slogan that came the slogan the slogan that came up at the end of the video, but it was a really impactful. And obviously Colin Kaepernick was like the star of it, who had been obviously at the epicenter of all this hate and anguish towards him because of his kneeling down uh, during the American anthem and that kind of thing. So I didn't want to make it seem like, oh, I think, you know, I think Nike have really uh, played this badly or I don't like Nike or anything like that. I, I do kind of understand why they've done this. I... I'm sitting kind of 50-50 between whether it's a blockade of freedom of expression or whether Nike have have done something that protects their brand image. Because on on the one hand, you know, if if someone released... I feel like if Lil Nas X was doing um, a, a pair of trainers that were Jesus-based and were, were based about, like, the kind of promoting... Christianity or promoting the greatness of religion. I don't think Nike would have would have taken any kind of offence that whatsoever. But it just so happens that it's about the reverse, which is you know the devil is still based in, in Christian society. Of course, it's it's quite kind of like a primary part of their whole of the whole existence. Um, but just because it's based around the devil, they've got a problem with it. And yeah, I, I find uh, I, I'm sitting fifty fifty. On the other hand they've got a multi-billion dollar brand that they have built and they have got the right to decide how they want their brand to be used. So I am sitting 50-50 on it. Um, Sam, what do you think of the track? I think the track's great. Yeah, it's a great hip-hop song. really good. Yeah, yeah, it's a great hip-hop song. And and, and, and really, it's a terrific video. Yeah, it's really Uh, well put together. And also, um, The Devil and Satan have been um, regular appearers in a variety of musical videos that have become very, very popular. And even if you want to, even if you want to say, well, this is a rap track, so maybe the, no, 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 because um, even like massive, even massive groups like, like Tenacious D did that whole film where the devil is a played part and, and no one complained about that. It's really, it's really a homophobic thing. Yeah. Um, I agree. And, and, and that's, that's what's coming across uh, and, and maybe even a racial thing. But that's that, that's that's probably a separate issue. This feels a little bit like when Madonna did uh, "Like a Virgin" and uh, Jesus was black and they kissed outside the prison and everyone just lost their minds. It feels a bit like it feels a bit like that. Um, that Christian conservatives are just angry at their um, at the at the betrayal of, of 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 their I don't know antithesis to their deity or, or or whatever 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 thing they want to call it. But really, the, the track the track's really really good, and this is a co- this has been a common theme like evil and good are common themes in literally every part of, of, of mainstream culture. Um, and from a Nike perspective, I really do think that um, they probably would have got behind it, albeit a more mediocre or safer version of what has come out had that been discussed a bit earlier. But the track itself is fine. And the video concept itself, I mean, I didn't, wa- I didn't watch that thinking... It is a bit extreme. I didn't 
like even from a neutral standpoint, like for example, if I'd watched the video and he actually has sex with Satan in the video, I'd have thought, wow, that is controversial. Yeah. Um, but it's really a lap dance. Yeah. Um, uh, upon a man who is who is dressed as 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 Satan. Um, I mean, if anything, little Nas is perpetuating the idea that the devil and heaven exist, which I would argue is pro Christianity. Um, yeah. uh, and, and 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 really and really, really, you know, Satan, you know, Satan was 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 pretty liberal. Um, you know, he's pro human rights. Is it is it inconceivable? That his sexuality was was open, but that's a that's probably a more th- um, theological conversation for a later day. But really, um, Christian conservatives are just picking the PR battle that they want to fight, um, while ignoring the hypocrisies around it. And Nike going with the checkbooks, and I don't think either of those things are particularly surprising. Well, I mean, the video was released two weeks ago. It's got 114 million views on YouTube in the space of two, sells, in the space of two weeks. You know, for for all the fury and anger that I've seen across social media towards this, all that all that does is, like you said, controversy sells, man. It makes pe- people's curiosity just gets the better get the better of them. But even without all the controversy, the song's great. I think Lil Nas is great, mm-hmm. and you know there is an argument, Sam, that perhaps the the video does go too far and perhaps it you know the the video is that Lil Nas has purposefully made this video knowing full well that it will offend someone well how about the fact that like some some Christians think it's offensive that gay people exist and think that gay people go to hell just for their sexuality how about that I find find that offensive so yeah absolutely so so I, I think that the idea of the idea of any of anyone having some kind of moral breakdown at the existence of this video and the existence of these trainers to me personally i don't understand because i'm not particularly a religious person but i sometimes toy with the idea of how far should we allow freedom of expression in music to go but i don't think this i don't think either the trainers or the video push that to any to any realm where we need to start questioning it I don't think nothing that I've seen, nothing that I've seen yet has ever made me think, oh, that that takes that takes it too far. Like you mentioned, Madonna just wasn't there like burning crosses in the like a virgin video. Yeah, yeah, there was. Wasn't there like a video where uh, Robbie Williams did where he starts like ripping off his flesh and throwing it to girls that are like kind of on roller skates around him? Do you know what I mean like this? The people making it sound this is the first uh, video that's ever happened that pushes the boat out there. I think that the video is cleverly put together. I think the song's great, and I think that Lil Nas has kind of absolutely taken advantage of the controversy that he knew it would cause. And on with you, Sam, I think this is a homophobic thing as opposed to, uh, as opposed to anything else that could be the motivation behind finding the problem with this. Completely agreed. Otherwise there'd be Christian conservatives um, arguing against productions of things like Daredevil or Lucifer yep. or, or any, 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 any books that reference hev- um, heaven and hell. Um like I said earlier, at least at least Little Nas is essentially promoting the idea that their fictional person exists. Um, so beyond beyond that, it's it, it, it it's just picking and picking and choosing. And I, I do feel that it's a racial thing. I do feel that it is a sexuality thing. And you are absolutely right. Um, 
we're talking about um, does music and art go far and too far? Well, if music and art um, is stirring up a controversy that exists, such as the homophobia of certain Christian conservatives in the world, then that actually should point a spotlight on certain parts of society that we should eradicate. Because if we live in a society where art is offensive, then I think that is the society's issue, not the that of the artist. And um, we did a top greatest metal albums of all time list, and I believe uh, Rain and Blood was third. And their, their, their opening track was um, Angel of Death, who's an about Nazi scientist. Mm. Still a great album. Um, so they have just not released that because people don't like any references to, to Nazism. Uh, um, you can't just pretend these areas of society don't exist. Um, it's just, it opens up a different, entirely different conversation. But the moment we start censoring artists, um, especially contemporary artists, and even even to go far as um, censoring black artists and LGBTQ artists, then that is not the direction that our society should be moving in. If anything, we should be celebrating freedom of expression, um, regardless of what the end product is. Um, but we shall see how this develops, obviously. Mate, I'm with you, man. Art reflects society. You want cleaner art, clean up society, and art will get cleaner. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Sam, we are going to move on going to give you this headline and then i'm going to go into further detail okay so linkin park's hybrid theory was fear factory for kids says burton seabell so <laughs> so right um burton seabell for people who don't know was the front man for fear factory and he said that he thinks that hybrid theory was a watered down version of Fear Factory's classic album, Demanufacture. Uh, this was during an interview that he had uh, with Metal Hammer. I was going to go through some of the quotes that he gave during this interview. Um, Demanufacture gave us a sound and it almost created a new genre. I think many people tried to copy it but never succeeded. Linkin Park did a watered down version of Demanufacture. I wasn't a fan. I respect what they did, but to me, it sounded like demanufacture for kids. Sam, is this sour grapes, or does Burton have a point here? Um, no, I don't think he has. I don't think he has a point. I do think it sounds a little bit bitter. It sounds a bit like um, why? Why won't children? Why won't kids listen to, to demanufacture? That's what it feels like, um, and it. All the all the alternatives that he's taking now that he's lost out from a success point of view to Linkin Park, he feels like he has to take some moral high ground. The demanufacture was aimed at a higher brow audience. Hmm. Um, I don't like I don't like either one of those things. I also don't like his assertion that demanufacture invented new metal. Is that what he's saying? Um, because it absolutely did not. Um, he demanufactures an industrial metal album that is very good. Does bang to be fair? It's awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's 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 an industrial metal album that I think belongs to a different genre entirely, and Linkin Park was following down a, a different a different pathway, and also I know lots of Fear Factory fans and people that like Fear Factory, and I wouldn't associate being a Fear Factory fan as some intellectually higher grain of being above Linkin Park. Um, Linkin Park in certain choruses into their music doesn't by definition make them inferior to Fear Factory, and if Burton Seabell which Dean Manufacturer was more successful, maybe he should have thought about the construction of his own songs rather than criticising Linkin Park. Because I don't think Linkin Park sat down there and listened to that album and thought, we can do that but sell more money. 
and I've and I've listened to interviews and conversations with Linkin Park and things like that, and I don't recall them mentioning Fear Factory as massive um, influences upon their sound. So Burton C. Bell has just appropriated an influence because he he's clearly upset that no one talks about Fear Factory anymore, and he's left the band. So it, why do you keep talking about this? Like if you've if you've if you've got out, then stay out. Um, it just these are the immediate feelings that are accompanying me, as you can tell, I'm already bitter. <laughs> well, well, I think that Fear Factory, as well as the likes of Machine Head, did play a have played did absolutely play a part in that early nineties of giving a framework. For, you know, if you were thirteen, fourteen in the early nineties, which I believe Linkin Park were, and you heard, I think Deep Manufacture came out in nineteen ninety four. I think, if I remember correctly. That sounds about right, but I don't know exactly. If you're in your teens in 94 and you hear D-Manufacturer, man, I mean, that there's every chance that that will shape or give you at least an idea for the kind of thematic ideas that you would like to implement in your yeah. band. But aren't you and, listening to Ministry and Nine Inch Nails afterwards, not Linkin Park? Well, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, I'm saying, like, if you're in... If you're in, like, if you're a teenager in the, in the early 90s, you're listening to Burn My Eyes by Machine Head and you're listening yeah. to Demanufacture by Fear Factory. And you're that, that is there's every chance that shapes what you would like to what you would like to pursue in a band. And I think that I, I personally don't hear a lot of Demanufacture on hybrid theory, but no. there, there is I'm at in 95, by the way. 95 right okay so I, I don't hear a lot of demanufacture on hybrid theory myself but there's every chance that there was at least mimics or, or elements that would influence certain ways that Linkin Park structured the sound I do think it's kind of weird uh, that Burton C. Bell has said this because can't the same be said for literally every band that's ever every album that's ever existed ever in, what, in the, it influenced what followed it? Well, yeah, and in the sense of, like, it's something but for kids. So uh, let me try and think of, of, a, of an example off the top of my head. Um, I, I suppose, in a way, Sam, you could say that Devil Driver is machine head for kids. You know, Devil Driver is doesn't, for my taste, doesn't go as heavy as machine head, especially early machine head. But that doesn't mean that it's quote unquote for kids because that that sounds like a derivative claim that something like Devil Driver stripped stripped Machine Head's sound down just to make it more accessible. That's not the case. It's quite clear that Machine Head influenced Devil Driver, but Devil Driver did their own credible source of Machine Head's style. Do you know what I'm getting at here? And, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Or Green Our Green Day, The Clash, or Sticky Little Fingers for kids. That's there we go. That's another good example. Like Green Day aren't the clash for kids. Green Day took a, the, you know, the kind of the imprint of the clash and did a credible retelling in their style. And I think that I'm not even sure whether you could say that for hybrid theory D manufacture because I don't really think the sound. I mean, what this has made what this has made me think, Sam, is do I need to go back and listen to D manufacture? And then listen to hybrid theory. It's a great and, album. I mean, I, my dear manufacturer bangs, but it's it's been a it's been a few years since I've listened to it, and I'm trying to think: should I go back and listen to this, and then listen to hybrid theory and see if I've missed something? Because off the top of my head, I, I don't feel like hybrid theory is a watered down version of D manufacturer at all. I, yeah, I don't know I what I'm missing also, here. 
I think I think that's fair. I also, I mean, I mean, if you want to look at Demon of and say that, all right, that kicked off a a part of a genre that incorporated electronic sounds into bigger choruses, which it kind of did. Um, I'm fine with that. But um, and Linkin Park came out like five years later, so it wasn't like a direct follow up where you could argue that this is like the way that the genre went. Um, if you want to talk to me, like I said earlier, if you want to talk to me about um, Demanufacture and its relationship with other other bands like Ministry and Nine Inch Nails, um, then great. Um, then I'm, I'm I'm absolutely with you. Um, but I think I think Linkin Park, um, especially Hybrid Theory, was a, a compilation album of varying different styles um, it, because because it just took from a variety of different places. It had yeah, it had big hook pop choruses. Um, with with down tune guitars, but it also had it also had rap, which to my knowledge isn't on Burton C Bell's um, Fear Factory, um, and and also featured things like DJ scratches and dual vocals and things like that. Um, so I, I I think it is a it's a it's a vastly different record to D Manufacture. I also personally don't see Fear Factory's D Manufacture as the um, as the genesis of that type of music at all. Me neither. I would have gone with Korn. Yeah. Well, it, it, it chronologically came out 18 months before. Um, so I don't, I don't agree simply. Uh, um, and I don't, I don't like his assertion that Linkin Park is like, they've just taken um, Fear Factory's ideas and just softened them because I just don't, I don't see that at all. I see a man who's listened to an album and saw some similarities to his own music, which is fine, and then exaggerated it to make his album sound better. I don't, I don't think it's anything beyond that. But also, music by nature is derivative, as you say. Hmm. And um, does that mean, um, especially if Mike Shinoda came out and said, well, you know, um, Bring Me the Horizons, um, There Is a Hell, it's just Linkin Park for metalheads. Um, and or Sepaternal is just mm. bringing uh, Link Linkin Park for emos, mm. um, but, but that's that's the way that music industry works. And Fear Factory didn't just pop out the fucking ground and sound just wake up next to each other and just start playing music. There were things that influenced Fear Factory and bands that went into into their ideas and their ideologies and things like that. So I don't know. It just it just seems really really arrogant. Um, to just be like, well, we started something that has been like he's almost like taking credit for forty million album sales or whatever Linkin Park got on Hybrid Theory for himself as as the influencer. It just it just rules me the wrong way, um, and, and I also don't think it's actually rooted in fact. Going to move on to album review, Sam. We will start with Cannibal Corpse Violence Unimagined. It is out on April sixteenth via Metal Blade Records. And it's the band's 15th album and a follow-up to 2017's Red Before Black. First of all, Sam, we don't get this often. I was wrong, Sam. Um, oh, I'm glad we're recording. <laughs> several times over the past few months, either on this podcast or in mine and your personal conversations, we've discussed Thy Art is Murder. And I've said that I'm worried about where Thy Art is Murder might go. Because of the because of the current state of uh, deathcore and hardcore and bands like Alpha Wolf, Diamond Construct, Left to Suffer, uh, Brand of Sacrifice, the steps they're taking 
And I said, yeah. oh, I'm worried. Oh, I'm worried that Dartis Murder might sound stale by the time the next record comes out. And you've you've always been, you've always said to me, well, can't they just be a death metal band for the next fifteen years and just be like that classic apex death metal band for our generation? And I said no because I, I, I thought that they'd run out of steam or that it would be it would become too boring after a while and that people would completely turn off them. But I listened to this Cannibal Corpse album, Sam by a band on their 15th album. 32 for, years, man. And for, for this album to be as good as it is, I will admit I was wrong about that. This album has absolutely no right to be as good as it is. I think this album <laughs> is really, really great, Sam. It is so good. I really, really enjoy this. Like, it's... It's definitely in every sense of the word, but the groove on this album just should not exist for something with as much pace and as much ferocity on this record. Early thoughts from you, mate. Where are you sitting on Violence Unimagined? I think this is great. I, I completely agree. Um, there, is a, there was a line in High Fidelity, which is my favourite film ever, where this guy is um, talking about Echo and the Bunnymen. And Captain Beefheart, and the guy says, um, Echo, he says to him, Echo and the Bunnymen picked up um, while you were wondering where your uh, Captain the Beefheart album, uh, albums were, where they left off. Uh, and just hands him this new album and says, just listen to those. In a way of saying, like, when this band that you love stop producing albums, just move on to this. They just picked up where the other one left off. And I feel this way about Cannibal Corpse and Slayer. Um, because Cannibal Corpse, this sounds like what Slayer should have released immediately after War Ensemble in mm. 1991. And if you're sitting around thinking, man, I miss classic thrash and classic death. I miss bands like Death, uh, death and uh, Exodus and Testament. And I miss that sound. And I'm listening to the new thrash and new death metal. And, it, and it's it's nice. It's great. But it's, it's not what I want. If you're like a big late 80s, early 90s death metal fan, you should hold this Cannibal Corpse album. And I'm assuming, because I haven't, listen to the last three or four Cannibal Corpse albums I'll be just straight up I've listened to the classics um, and sort of dip back out you I assume you should also be holding these incredibly close to your chest um, because there is a refreshing feeling of nostalgia for an, for an era that I wasn't even alive in when I hear this mm. um, that I, I'm like man you this just sounds like 1993 or yeah. 1988 but with modern production just, but with, with with modern production, um, this is this is terrific. This is picked up, like I said, like right where where Slayer left off in the mid nineties, um, and just just raced it back. And I agree, I agree with you. This is as death metal as death metal gets in terms of if me and you sat down and listed all of the what we call tropes of death metal, so blast beats, down tune guitars, screaming, changes of tempo. This literally is like, yep, 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 yep. This is like death metal by numbers, but it's so fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, God, it's so great. great. It's, it's so good. Uh, this is, because um, I the brand of Sacrifice, I really, I really liked it, even though I felt like at times it was trying to um, deliberately <laughs> try and win the most extreme metal album of the year award but, um, uh, uh, simultaneously. This feels like a top three death metal release this year. Oh, yeah. Um, for, for me. Um, for me. And... If we even widen that, it might be um, a top extreme metal release, period. Um, yes. Yeah. Just, just, this is just terrific. Um, 
It's a thrill ride from start to finish. Well, you mentioned something just, Sam. You were like, I haven't heard a Cannibal Corpse album in the last three or four. And I go even further than that, mate. The only Cannibal Corpse record I've heard before this was Tomb of the Mutilated because it's considered a classic in death metal, right? So as I, you know, I've said the story a million times, I got into metal late. So as I'm reading through, right, what records should, should I hear? And what records is it like insane that I haven't heard yet? In terms of death metal, Tomb of the Mutilated seemed to be one of the main ones you have to hear. Um, and that record goes unbelievably hard and Hammer Smash Face is an absolute banger. But the grandiose violence is a little bit silly, isn't it? And it's hard to take seriously. And there's like songs there like Icon Blood and Addicted to Vaginal Skin. And, you know, and it's all, I, I get why people obsess over that album, but it is all a bit silly, isn't it? And, you know, it's yeah. so over the top. That it does Adolescent. Yeah, it, it, it's so over the top that it does become kind of gimmicky to me. And obviously, uh, George Fisher slash Corpse Grinder didn't actually do the vocals for that album. Um, he's, I think I think uh, Corpse Grinder came in in like 95. But this is the first Cannibal Corpse record I've heard since then because my idea as someone who wasn't really listening to Cannibal Corpse was, right, that's the absolute classic. It didn't grab me. So I'm just going to move on now and I'll go to Entombed or... You know, so I'll go to Slayer, etc. This mate is a legitimate, intelligent, brutal, great, great death metal record. And I think a lot of that, Sam, is to do with Eric Rutan, who has been brought into the band for this album. And he was the guitarist for Morbid Angel, but he's been brought in on guitar and also produced this record. So his leads and production of this album really, for me, sets the spine for it being this brutal yet really intricate and technical like journey. Mate, the looping guitar, like kind of Mark Mo Mark Morton-esque pickriff on Necro Necrogenic Resurrection. Some of the names of these songs are class, by the way. Is the uh, so is awesome and it slows down into this like really brutal chug that's corpse grind just grown over the top of. It's this harrowing shit, but with Eric Rutan exploding out with this really slick solo, it, it really that track I just obsessed over. It's the second track on the record, following after the open the murders rampage, and I just kept listening to it because I was just like obsessed with Eric's sound on it. It's um it's the most accessible Cannibal Corpse album I've ever heard. But it's it's um, it's not light, obviously. How could they? Um, but there is there is so much there is so much to enjoy here, and I agree with you. Like um, Cannibal Corpse, have verge on the silly in the in the way that like certain horror movies just become ridiculously um, un unbelievable, and mm. there's there's so much blood that it becomes you become uh, desensitized to the the sort of the violence and stuff, whatever like after saw 17 or whatever do you know what i mean like yeah. it's just it's that sort of vibe whatever you're like oh, okay great that's a quick eye out fantastic um but this actually can be enjoyed uh, as i did i'll be frank we don't really pay much attention to the lyrical content or read the titles um just uh, I, I looked at the titles as a reference point to know what song was what and um sometimes i heard some of the chorus lyrics and i was like okay that's that's fine um Miss me with reading the lyrics of Ritual Annihilation. I can I could probably piece together what that what that's about. <laughs> Same with Bound and Burned, um, uh, and things like that. But this can be listened to and enjoyed as a thoroughly fantastic album musically. 
if you're just a fan of riffs and grooves and fantastic drumming and good death metal uh, vocals, then just just listen to it and enjoy. Uh, because there are a few moments that I really, really rocked with this album. And I, and I, and I want to talk about some of them. Uh, the opening riff to Inhumane, um, Har- uh, Inhumane Harvest. Uh, nice, slow, groovy. A lovely chord and groove halfway through. The scaling riff at the start of Surrounding Kill and Devour was just phenomenal. Um, same with the, um, the sliding riff on Follow the Blood. And Bound and Bird felt like it was a classic classic Slayer cut. Um, and slaying with uh, Slowly Sawn, it was like this offbeat opening that I'm just, I'm, I'm in love with that type of stuff. I just even even felt proggy at times, some of the tail at the end of that riff. Um, there's just so many, so many moments on this album where the, the riffs are fantastic and I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, actually, when it broke away from the blast beats, because, you know, after like, 17 bars of that it can get a bit repetitive so I, I enjoyed what Cannibal Corpse did because they experimented a bit more with tempo and they experimented a bit more with groove and it just feels like a legitimately terrific um, groovy death metal album because this can be thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed as a, as a musical work of art um, because it's 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 just a terrific it's just a terrific album from a musical standpoint and I've, I've really really enjoyed it I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I want to say as well, I was actually impressed um, because I really did expect um, 15 blast beat songs um, where I'd have to like um, really, really delve in and really give it some time and, 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 and sort of sit down with it in the same way that you had to kind of figure out the pupil size of record. And then, then I thought by the end of that journey, I'd just be like, okay, well, they're just screaming about dying babies or whatever. And it would just lose that impact on me. But I, I it's a terrific, terrific death metal album. I was really impressed. The variations on tempo, you made a great point there. I think that's what makes this record. Like on Condemnation Contagion, that's like got a much slower tempo, but I'm obsessed with Paul's drumming on, on, that, uh, on that song. It puts these kind of fills in during the verse where he's covering the whole kit and then transforms into blast beats for the tempo change, which is like really wicked. And I, I love how he kind of dictates the speed of this. I mean, obviously the drummer dictates the tempo, but in terms of how Eric's guitars are mixed in with Paul, it's really clear how that dictation of the sound is being like mathematically produced. And I love follow the, you, I think you mentioned it. I love follow the blood man. There's these languishing yeah. extended notes that come at the end of the riffs. And I'm a big fan yeah. of the tonality change. It sweeps in about halfway through. And then, mate, we haven't even spoke about the solos. Proper Kerry King style. The uh, transition of speed and ferocity across this album. You can't keep... This album doesn't keep still. But when I say things like that, I think that perhaps that makes it... I'll get lost in translation, making it all sounds like a mess. It really doesn't. There's a real structure to this Mm -hmm. record. And an unbelievable... I keep saying it. The groove on this, I cannot believe how they've managed to fix this groove on such a hard, punching, quick album. And we haven't even really spoke about Corpse Grinder's vocals on this. He's got this kind of effortless violence like CJ. You know, when we see CJ live, mm-hmm. it's like he's not even trying. Yeah. And he sounds like he sounds like a demon and he's, he's not even attempting. I kind of get that vibe with Corpse Grinder on this. It just sounds effortless for him. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you would... 
you'd probably argue that Corpse Grinder is the, the godfather for that that type of sound, considering yeah. the, the timeline and stuff like that. Um, for that modern death metal growl, he's he's probably the the blueprint. Um, but I completely agree with you. Some of the some of the solos here. There's a one at the end of um, the final tune, um, "Ceremonies of the Flayed," mm, yeah, um, which is just like Jeff Hanneman esque with those like high pitched runs. Um, but I, I I I agree with you. These are well constructed songs, and they they the the key for that is that they have they establish a pattern, they establish a rhythm, they establish a motif. And they return to it and then they transition away from it and then they return to it again. And it gives the strongs real structure and real power and real hooks that could pull in, um, that could pull in other fans. Um, because I feel that like this is an album that you could show a metal fan and get them to become a cannibal corpse fan. Yeah, and you I could show this to a slipknot fan. 100 percent And I don't think I could have done that. With some of their classic works, unless that person was also like you or me, which are like metal nerds, or like um, someone who's like super into grindcore, super into really hard death metal already. Um, hmm. You know, whereas this actually feels almost in, like an introduction into, well, if you like Thrash, you like Slayer, you like Machine Head, um, you like Devil Driver, then you should absolutely enjoy this and we'll start here. Well, Previously, if someone's favourite album was Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses, I would not show them Tomb of the Mutilated, but I'd show them this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. I mean, the, 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 there'd have to be like six degrees of separation before you got to Tomb of the Mutilated from pretty much every every <laughs> album, um, really, yeah. wouldn't you? Do you know what I mean? Um and probably the other albums that would lead that would be other Cannibal Corpse albums. Um, but, <laughs> but with with this, I, I agree, and that's why that's why I keep talking about like um, like when I got into Slayer, I started listening to bands that sounded like Slayer because I, I was like obsessed with them for a bit, um, and then I really started getting into um, bands like Evil and stuff like that, um, like you know sort of new thrashy bits. But if you, if if I'd have if I'd have heard this at that time, I'd have just thrown myself straight in. That's what it feels like. Um, and yet, I want to talk about the the thing that you mentioned at the start. Um, this this shows that you can do ACDC for death metal, right? Yeah. Where you can be you could be the Ramones. You can produce an album that sounds like this every every you know two to three years. And if you're a Cannibal Corpse fan, I imagine you are buzzing your tits off how good this album sounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're obviously going to go and see and they're a legendary act and you can do this you can carve a living out this way and i think um for a band like thyarty's murder who have already who are already approaching let's be honest like a legendary pseudo legendary status within deathcore um that they could absolutely do this for another sort of 10 or 15 years but also shout to cannibal corpse because it's e- it's just easy to chalk up the like the next 15 years to a band it'd be like oh they'll just do this forever and that'll be fine um but also how difficult is it to do this forever yeah um like to play at this level to play at this complexity um because i mean i mean 32 years man 32 years like the the excuse the pun but the literal grind of having to do this vocally and having to play at this level um because even the even with the new new members i mean like the guitarist is it's a previously member of Morbid Angel, which wasn't exactly like playing, playing, you know, playing pop Acoustic songs. Acoustic sessions. 
Yeah, yeah. He, was, he wasn't working for Jamiroquai before he got this job. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, it's hardly like he's, he's given he's given himself a break either. So the, the stamina is superb. Um, how many bands, Chris? And this is a tough one. Um, and I'm sorry for throwing this on you. How many bands, Chris, um, have been have been this good at their fifteenth album? Is this the best fifteenth album ever? Honestly, mate, um, you brought this up. I was going to say this to you, like, mate, if if we were going to review Anthrax's fifteenth album, I'd be fucking dreading it. Iron Maiden, it's the other one. They've had fifteen albums. And well, so their last one was. Um, no, oh, so what was it called? It was our. Um, Oh, you've done it. I'm gonna to have to. Metal Hammer were all over it. It got their album of the year and stuff like that. I've, oh, some gonna, shock horror. I'm gonna to have to remind myself now because you've annoyed me. I can see the actual album cover. Yeah, I can, I can see. I can. See, oh, the Book of Souls. That's it. The Book of Souls. Um, is this a better? Is this a better Cannibal Corpse album than Iron Maiden's Book of Souls? Probably. Yeah, I can't say for certain because I haven't listened to Book of Souls because Iron Maiden. I just don't fuck with. But I, yeah. I, I'd, I'd be willing to bet. And I mean, let, let's let's put Metallica from ten, and based on our little argument a few months ago, would you want to hear what Metallica said like five albums from now? I would, you wouldn't. Um, five albums a long time. Mm. Um, Slayer, I mean, fifteen albums from Slayer. I mean, this is this is the this is the best fifteenth metal album ever. And if someone wants to point out an album that's the fifteenth album that's better than this, sound, I absolutely welcome it. Um, but I think this this has a chance to be the best one. Well. Mate, you mentioned Slayer, and we both said when we heard we weren't doing a podcast back then, and when we heard Repentless, we were like, "This should be the last album." Yeah, really. Yeah, you, were, you were okay with it coming to an end. Yeah. Whereas, like, mate, with this, I could hear another five albums of this of of um, Violence Unimagined easily. It's I, great. I agree. Do you think there's something to be said as well with lineup changes, freshening it up? You make a decent shout there. You make a decent shout there. Obviously, if we're going to relate that in terms of Slayer, that's difficult. But the overall concept of bands been going for 30 years, how do we freshen it up and how do we make our sound not seem like it, not sound like it's 30 years old? Mate, you make a great point. There's a You mentioned Ceremonies of the Flayed there. Yeah. And there's a moment on Ceremonies of the Flayed where the vogue, where the lyric is buried alive with the skin of another human that's still alive. And usually... Jesus. Now, usually, I would eye roll at that because it's so grandiose and over the top that it just seems silly. But there's so much legitimacy to that song and this album that it doesn't make you turn your nose up at it, even though it's like hilariously violent. It's still legit because the record is so brilliantly produced and so brilliantly executed. Sam, I I think this is probably going to be the best death metal record of the year. I really That's love it. this. It's got no right to be this good. 15 albums, and it sounds like this. It yeah, is absurd, this is. It's outrageous that Cannibal Corpse are putting out something that sounds this good 32 years into their career. I, I, I am all about this record, man. It's so good. It's the kind of thing like, mate, when we finish this, I'm going to play it again. Because it's, it's, it's like Lamb of God turned up to 11 in terms of speed and ferocity. It's got the Lamb of God groove, but with a fucking heavier and quicker punch. Mate, what else do you want? Honestly, yeah, um, as well. Um, we've said this as well. This is another topic. Um, it's really difficult to sound fresh in a genre that has literally been perfected 
um, at times we've talked about thrash metal and I've been cynical and said, well, is it Rust in Peace? Is it Randy Blood? Is it Master of Puppets? No, cool. Um, and death metal is kind of the same because um, you, you can you can rattle off some some classic tracks and classic bands and and then be like, you know, it doesn't quite sound this good. Um, I don't understand because it, it features every every classic um, death metal trait and still manages to sound fresh and interesting. It's like if I wrote a gothic horror story about a tall, thin, pale man who lives in a castle and bites people on the neck and just gave it a different name. And it was Wackula. That was incredible, thank you. Um, yeah, um, or like the, the JD from Scrubs because it's Dr. Acula and takes them. Yeah, I fucking them. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> puts the puts all the words together and it comes back out. Yeah. Um, but that that's what this has done. It says we're going to release an album that it sounds like every death metal album you've ever heard, literally down to the to the to the drum beats and the mixing. And it's going to be great. And we're like, all right, that sounds great. That's cool. Um, and it's it's exactly it's exactly what's happened. This does sound like a combination of death and morbid angel and cannibal corpse and every great death metal album. A bit of um a bit of carcass and, and entombed with a good one that you mentioned and all that sort of stuff. All that devilish shit has all just come together and, and come out with a seething metal pot of, of anguish. And because I agree with you, because the riffs are so good, I don't mind that I'm reviewing albums where the songs are called like slowly sawn. I don't, I don't yeah. mind even, even though that is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Um, because, because of, because of what's going on here. So like, I mean, there, there are names on here. Ceremons. Google didn't even know what that meant. When I, when I typed that, when I typed, when I typed that in I'm on some of my notes, my phone was like, "Did you mean cemeteries?" And there was no other suggestion. <laughs> so, so, for it to sound that good, and and to for me not to really come on the podcast and just be like, "This is whack," um, because it's just so ridiculous. And who is this aimed at? And whatever. Um, the, this is, I think this is fantastic. I, I agree with you. I'll be hard pushed to find a better death metal release this year and maybe next year, to be honest. Yeah. This is this has a chance to be a defining death metal album for already as well, for the already defining extreme death metal band um, yeah. of, of the 20th century. So shout to Cannibal Corp, shout to Longevity and shout to you for owning it because you, you tended not to think that this type of thing was possible and I wouldn't have thought that this band would be able to do this, but shout no. to them as well. No, I was wrong. Uh, this is the best death metal album I've heard in years. I fucking love this. This is fucking brilliant. Um, I think it's got a show to be up there with me at the end of the year in my list. I, I think this album is really, really great. Shout to Cannibal Corpse. I was wrong. Um, and just bringing it a full circle back to my point at the start. By Art is Murder, okay. Yep, they can do this for 15 albums. If they, I mean, obviously, if they choose to do something different and push themselves out there, great. Obviously, we always champion that. But if they decide, no, we'll just stick as a legendary death metal act, then go this route and cool, I'll buy every album. Um, fucking Violence on the Mansion by Cannibal Corpse is really, really great. I'm in. Okay. Going to close off the show, Sam, before my interview with Pontus and Henrik from Horndale comes in with... Holding Absence, the greatest mistake of my life, uh, is out on the 16th of April via Sharp Town Records. And it's the band's second album, the follow-up to 2019's self-titled effort. 
When we originally reviewed the self-titled album, Sad, we said we liked it and nothing more. Then over time, I grew to fall in love with it. Did you ever go back and think anything more than it was a 7 out of 10, Sam? That self-titled album. No. I no. Um, around that time, Sam, in what I think was lazy and cheap journalism, in fact, quick side note here, if you heard my interview with Lucas on the last episode... Um, oh, sorry, on the, on the episode before last, sorry, before the While She Sleeps episode, there is going to be some things that I'm going to repeat here just for the sake of we're reviewing it. And I did discuss some of this with Lucas. So uh, there are things I'm going to repeat here. One of the things that I discussed with Lucas is that around that time, there was some cheap journalism that I saw and they got thrown into the pot with like Senses Fail and My Chemical Romance, which I thought was lazy and I, and I didn't really ever see myself. And I think when you listen to this album, this is much more the cure than it is any kind of emo band. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is an emo band, uh, emo band at all. In the same way that when we reviewed Creeper, the idea of comparing them to My Chemical Romance was laughable then. Yeah. Um, and this, this feels, um, this feels in the same way. And I wouldn't actually even compare this to Creeper because it doesn't have the same no. sense of theatricality and things like that. Um, the only word similarity I'll draw there is the fact that, you know, there's a bit of piano and the chorus is a massive, but really aside from that, it, 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 it's, it's on its own in the way that it's structured and styled and stuff. What's interesting, and a big fair play to Holding Absence for this, their self-titled album only came out two years ago, but they already feel like a different proposition. You look at, again, something I mentioned to Lucas, the presentation of this album. The 2019 self-titled album was was like black and grey. This is colourful. It's set in like a theatre setting. Uh, the typography on the record reads Sharp Tone Records presents Holding Absence performing The Greatest Mistake of My Life. You know, the, the video, if you watch their music videos now, they're colourful. Uh, the one for Afterlife is literally set as if it's a drama production. So, you know, the visual presentation of the band has literally switched in two years when they didn't really have to because, Sam, off the back of their self-titled album, they'd really grown exponentially to the point of where they would be now considered a flop if this record fell on its face, I feel. Yeah, I, I think, and I think it's um, such a good thing, isn't it, when bands decide to reinvent themselves before being feeling like they're being prompted by any stagnation or anything like that, anything from the record label. Um because I think it's also worked for their benefit on this album. Um, because it does feel like a progression. Um, I saw it being described as progressive on Twitter, and I'm not too sure it's, I don't sure it's, it's not a prog album, um, but it is a massive progression from what they are. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think that, I think there's, there's something to be said um, for that at this early into a band's career, when usually the instinct is just to kind of establish yourself at what you are currently doing. I think, Sam, this album's really, really great. I really like this album, Sam. Yeah, I I, I, I thought that you loved this pretty much about 30 seconds of the first with a kiss. Um, to, to be honest, like pretty much um, by the second track, I knew this was all, all, all over you. I really like it as well. I really like it as well. I'll, pre I'll, pre I'll preface this by, by, by saying that this is not always in my wheelhouse. Um, um, because I'm not usually this type of listener. Like you know, it took me a while to get 
the Menzingers, it took me a little bit of time to get into like Lonely the Brave and things like that. And it sometimes it takes the, the right album at the right time. Um, I was cynical about Teenage Wrist until I listened to them and then thought they're really good, so I accept that. Um, but this is this is terrific. This is terrific. Um, the first, the first, the, the, the first list I had to this, and the second list I had to this was was incredibly different. By the by, the end of the second list, the listen, I was really, really into it. Um, the first listen, I wasn't, I wasn't. I, I listened to it and I was thinking, man, am I gonna have to have an awkward conversation with Chris and be like, just so, you, <laughs> just so you know, like, because Jack's really into him and you're really into him. We've interviewed him, and I was like, fuck, I was literally gonna be like in the chat, like, lads, we've got to talk about this because I'm not feeling the album. So, uh, what are we gonna do? Um, but by the end of the, thankfully by the end of the second one, I really started to to, to get it, and, and it started to click with me. And it's strange how that happens. Um, how you can you can listen to an album at a different point of the day or a different time, and then you, your entire experience with it can be adjusted. Um, but I think this is um, I think this is really really good. Um, the, the stereotypical stuff to say is how fantastic the vocal melodies are, which they absolutely are. Yeah. Um, but I want I want to I want to talk about. Um, just how mature the songs feel and how this feels like a grown-up band um, that are in the middle of their career rather than a startup band, which let's be honest, two or three years ago, they absolutely were <laughs> yeah. um, for them, for, for them to, for them to sound like this at this point. I mean, if Alexis on fire released this or funeral for a friend released this, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be surprised because it feels like an, a band like 10 years into their career that have found out who they are and are releasing like a big album. And, and I mean, that's an absolute compliment um, because this is, this is fantastic. I think there's a, there's a punching well mixed um, heartbeat running throughout this, um, throughout this album. There is incredibly expansive choruses where they um, experiment, not just with the soaring pop melodies that I know they're very good at, but there's also an attempt to incorporate a roughness and a dirtied sort of exterior into the into the albums as well, um, and I think um, while sometimes these albums feel there's like seven or eight tracks that are incredibly similar and it all just sort of washes over at once, I do feel that there are a couple of standout songs that will sort of stand the test of time with me as a listener and me as a fan moving forward. I think "Drums of Love" is one of those songs. Oh my god, that song is is it incredible? I think that's the personal highlight of the album for me. Yeah, it is. It's the best thing they've ever written. Yeah, it just the, that melody just jumps out the speakers. It's this ascending and descending vocal style, and their ability to incorporate something—it's a motif that I love anyway. But I, I adore when you have like an addition. And while she sleeps, do this as well, oh well, which is why I love this album. When you have like two vocals working at the same time, and they sort of snake in between each other, and there's a main chorus, and there's a vocal sort of adding around that, giving it like an extra texture and making that chorus feel fresh. Um, and interesting. I am um, in love with that style, and I think that's where well, um, that's where Holden Absence are incredibly strong. Um, like we were talking before about um, when I mentioned that this album, this band picks up where another band left off. If if you are a mid two thousands, you meet six or Death of Anna type fan. And you're sad that those bands have changed direction and moved away from the art, the art of the music that you particularly liked, or you'll miss you miss a band like Alexis on Fire, for example, or Funeral for a Friend, um, or even or even even further. And you you're like you like taking back Sunday's early material, and you want a emotive but hard hitting album that feels poppy and yet feels emotive and heavy. 
then hold an absence of the band for you, aren't they? Because I, I think that's 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 their role for a music that's their role for a music fan. Because at no point does this feel like a, a hard rock or heavy metal album, but at no point does it feel like a pop punk album either. But it sits nicely in this like emotive alternative rock section that I think is becoming a growing trend among among listeners and among bands that are coming out. And I think that's a really nice spot for them to be in. I seem to have found their style and their niche because there are, there is some darkness to this that I really, really enjoy. Um I like I like in circles. It's got like a hypnotic soothing vocal melody. Um and I and I like Curse with a Kiss. I think that's an ex, it's just an excellent driving song. And I enjoy the the punky element to afterlife that feels that feels a bit rougher. Um, I think there's um, there's a lot to be said about this album's um, ability to hook in a variety of listeners that are probably currently sad listening to songs from from artists that are no longer producing that type of material and have no fear because holding absence are doing that job for you. I think this album is really bold, Sam. Like literally from the way it tells this kind of oxymoronic story that starts in a temporal shift all the way through to how the synths really do lay the groundwork for the album. This album is literally bold in every sense of the imagination. Like the opening lyric on this album is again, something I discussed with Lucas. I'm alive in an album that is recounting his issues in love he starts with i'm alive on celebration song which is a song that obviously celebrates the concept of living and still being alive and that's a really like neat manipulation that is and it's i mean that song in itself has got this really beautiful synth background it's gorgeous to listen to and you mentioned cursing with your kiss, and that's got like a, a synth glitched opening, and this kind of these snare breaking hits from Ashley Green, whose whose sort of drum sound I should say is really great on this album, and the chorus is stunning, and the record is great at building the chorus to be the real focal centerpiece, and sometimes that I'll be honest, that does make the verses seem a little bit inconsequential, but the payoff when it hits the chorus is always absolutely worth it. And you mentioned in circles, and I wanted to make a point about that. Let's call it what it is, Sam. Lucas is the star of the band. Right. Yeah. But yeah. but it's not to the extent of Amy Lee and Evanescence, in Evanescence, sorry, which we were talking about a few weeks ago, where basically in Evanescence, everyone else is completely expendable apart from her. That's not the case in Holding Absence. I was going to say, like, I, I, I don't feel that it's um, no. Lucas and the Holding Absences. Do you know what no. I mean? I don't feel like it's that at all. No. And the reason why that's not the case is in circles is a brilliant example of this. The gentle, ba- the gentle bass, synth and drum beats behind Lucas all really culminating the chorus. And I think what Holding Absence are really, really good at, and in some ways older than their years at being able to do this, is being able to figure out a base to build so that when Lucas does come in with a big hook melody, that it sounds stunning and massive and theatrical and almost, in some cases, like operatic, like drugs and love. That, mate, that chorus is as mind-blowing, mate. I think it's the best thing they've done to date. It, it, the, it, Lucas just soars above everything on that chorus, but not to the point where it dumbs down everyone else's involvement. Um, I mentioned Ashley Green's 
drum sound, which I think is really, really well mixed on this album. On Afterlife, mate, which has got the most incredibly infectious chorus. I love the way it loops, the chorus loops after Ashley's snare hits on the second run. Everybody goes, dum, dum, dum. And then the chorus comes back in. So, so brilliant. It's it's the most infectious song I've heard all year. I've blasted it almost every day since it was released as a single. Um, And I think, and then you've got towards the end of the record, No More Roses comes in to take a kind of break from all the like emotive soul searching to give this really like dark, bruising, harrowing breakdown of Lucas's lack of faith. And it was kind of interesting for them to take this slower, punchier attack. And there are moments on this song where Lucas is like legitimately growling. There's half-step vocals in there as well. It's not like a deviation from the album per se, but it's kind of a sideward step that acts as kind of a timely break from everything that surrounds it. Um, and then speaking of speaking of Lucas's vocals, mate, Die Alone in Your Lover's Arms, in my opinion, is Lucas's best ever work in terms of vocals. The whole thing's gorgeous. Piano notes are like just wonderfully placed. Lucas's sister puts in a really great guest performance. I mean, how much talent is in that family? Jesus Christ. But Lucas really steals it. The the kind of sweet little inflections he puts on his voice just elevate this, elevate the track to the next level. And I think that I'd, maturity sounds derivative when we're talking about holding absence because they didn't need to do this. They didn't need to take the sound up a level because with the self-titled album, they'd really started a great snowballing momentum for themselves. But it's just evidence that every time this band get in the studio, they just get better. Right the way yeah. from the first time I heard Saint Cecilia, which was on an EP that they did, then to the time me, you and Jack were in his car and we heard Like a Shadow. And I was like, mm-hmm. is this holding absence? He was like, yeah, haven't you heard it yet? I was like, no, this is amazing. Right the way through to me hearing Afterlife, and Birdcage and Gravity, which are two singles that aren't on this album, which were both brilliant, all the way through to Drugs and Love, mate. Every time this band get in the studio, they just get better. And there's an elevation to this band that just, at the moment, just seems unstoppable, mate. Yeah, there's an, ex- there's an expansive nature to their songwriting that seems to have increased. Um, that I was, I was a little worried that they'd have found a niche and just sort of continued it and wanted to just write sort of uh, big pop songs essentially as as, as 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 their career went on and and at times when the melodies run out then you've got no songs left but um where this where this proof of that hypothesis or worry was unfounded was um on the final main song i think morning song which i think is beautiful yes yeah, cool um um just the perfect final end to the album and a real true holding absence song as in I think it really encapsulates the journey that they're on as a band and the differences that made for the last album because um, it's a collection of expansive and deeply melancholy songs that they've written on this album. And I think that Morning Song brings that all together really nicely at the end um, as a summary almost of this sort of big tale of addiction and woe um, that they've that they've constructed. And it's, it's simultaneously harrowing and heartwarming and it's an incredibly well-written song that feels big and, and grand and there's an element of theatre and narrative to it that is allowing the music to not just feel like cheap emo pop songs, which is like the the very base, minimalist, lazy way to describe any of this type of music. But they, they have they've gone beyond any of those worried stereotypes um, about about this about this genre and about this band, 
by by proving that they can go beyond those limitations and really push the boat out every time that they produce. Um, I think I think like I, I talked to I talked to talked about this before about the role that they they can fit in 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 the music industry. I think there is absolutely a big space. Um, there's a big gap that is waiting for this next big emotive alternative rock band to sort of pick up where some of these other ones have died away or left. And we've got lots of bands that are seem to be competing for that type of spot. We've reviewed a few of them. Um, that some of them delve more into the sort of metal arena and combine it with these sort of bigger choruses. But the, there is a chance that Holding Absence can really claim an alternative, a massive alternative music spot and start playing bigger stages like sort of Reading and Leeds uh, and, and even places like Glastonbury and start building up their audience and stuff because they're the, they write the sort of music that can be played on Radio 1 and on late night contemporary radio stations that can appear in hits of the day, Spotify playlists, and also um, darker alternative rock playlists as well. Um, and I think that's, um, that's a really nice camp, two camps to sort of be simultaneously in. Um, so I, I tip my hat to them because I think this is um, a really good album. And I also think it's the next, next big step for them. If they can continue this, and take this momentum because I'm sure I'm sure that they're going to build to build from and, and take it to another album that is just as good and maybe takes them a little step further. That we could be looking at a really big band for the next decade. Probably the best way for me to sum up where the, where I think this album's going to take them, Sam, is if I ask you this question: We're seeing Architects uh, next February on an arena tour. While she sleeps, main support and holding absence opening. Yeah, we spoke we spoke about this before, didn't we? And yes, yeah. that would be that would be the ideal British one, two, three, wouldn't it? Yeah, to where holding the, absence where, where, could absolutely open going. an yeah, okay, holding up. Sorry to interrupt there. Holding absence no, can absolutely open an arena show with this album. Absolutely. absolutely. Why can't they open for bring? Why couldn't they open for bring me? Yep, they could open for bring me as well. I think that this album, I'm confident, will put them into. 1,000 capacity venues comfortably. I think that, as we mentioned, this could get them open in the arena shows. And I think this album could put them, could continue that snowball moving down so that the next album puts them in headlining academies comfortably. And then who knows after that, Sam? I think this album is really, really great. I don't want to get too hyperbolic over it and make it seem like it's the greatest sound of the decade. You know, it's not. There are still there are still moments that obviously I'm sure the band know that they could do little tweaks on. Like I say, some of the verses are a little bit inconsequential, where you can tell the whole song's been built around Lucas's chorus. But yeah. really, mate, for a band that are still incredibly young on the second full length record, I'm really excited about where this band can go. They get better every time they're in the studio, which you can literally hear. If you listen to their discography, you can literally pick that up as you go. And they're at the right age. They've got the right kind of fan base. Lucas is a tremendous charismatic front man. They've got the kind of, they're on the right label. Sharp Time Records is the perfect label for Holding Absence to be on with the kind of roster that Sharp Time have got. Everything is built for Holding Absence to go and potentially make, make real superstars of themselves. And I think that three or four more records of this quality we could we could be talking about that, but for now, in the immediacy, this is a great record 
that elevates them to the next step. I've got no doubt this elevates holding absence to 1,000 capacity venues comfortably. No doubt in my mind. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And that rounds off episode 64 of the Noise podcast before my interview with Horndale's Herrick and Pontus comes in. If you are still listening, thank you very much. We appreciate you hanging around. Um, but don't go anywhere because my interview comes up right now. Be sure to give us a follow slash subscription on whichever service you are using. Sam, we are planning to be back next week with a special episode with a guest that I don't want to announce yet in case it doesn't happen. <laughs> I don't want to curse us. Absolutely. Um, there is a exciting, there's an exciting podcast arriving, uh, we feel. We're very, looking, very much looking forward to it. So next Tuesday, me and Sam should be back with a guest on the podcast which we are incredibly incredibly excited about but the interview hasn't happened yet which is why i'm not saying who it's going to be because if then something happens and it can't get done then it's you know the embarrassing oh this is what happened you know i said it's gonna happen but it hasn't so yeah we should be back next tuesday with our biggest guest ever and we literally can't stop thinking about it worst case scenario we will be back in two weeks time with a fresh new episode for you. Thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate every single listen we get. If you can give us a like and a subscription, that would be awesome. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, which we should have mentioned at the start, at Noise Podcast. Me and Sam are on there daily. My interview with Herrick and Pontus from Horndale hits you right now. Thank you for listening. We'll see you hopefully next Tuesday. We love you. Bye. So I'm now joined by Henrik and Pontus from Horndal, a Swedish death metal band, uh, on the release date of your new album, Light Drinker. Guys, thank you so much for giving me your time, especially on your release date. That's awesome. Thank you very much. It's, it's, it's my pleasure. It's our pleasure to be here. We haven't got um, a lot of time, so I'm going to get straight into the questions. Um, your previous yeah, record, sure. uh, Remains, was all about was also about the whole, your hometown of Horndal, uh, but more specifically about a steel mill that was being closed down uh, about 40 years ago. Around the time of you releasing the album was when Google purchased the land to build their new site in Horndal, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Case, did you know there and then that the next record would be about uh, Google's new venture? Uh, uh, we kind of uh, realized that it had to be about Google because uh, like almost when we were finished with, with uh, Remains, we, we kind of started to hear the news and, 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 and the gossip. Um, and uh, at first we thought like, fuck, this is going to ruin our story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, now our little town is going to flourish. Yeah. We don't like that. We're, we're a metal band. We, we want the gloomy stuff. So, yeah. uh, uh, But come to think of it, you know, Google isn't the nicest company in the world, you know? Mm. They, so, um, and, and when we realized and we heard about what they actually wanted to do, uh, you know, they, they wanted to use our our Lake Rossen as a cooling facility for their server halls there. So, uh, and then we realized, okay, they're going to drink our lake. They're, that, this is a new devil coming to town. So that, that was great news. 
you know, towns the size of Horndor, which has got around about a 1,000 uh, population, usually have a very, very tight community. Um, yeah. Are, are most people in the town against the idea? You know, is, is this another case of the rich doing what they want and not caring about the thoughts or feelings of everyone else? You know, uh, I, I don't, uh, you know, we're nowadays... I, we moved from there like when I was when I was 18 we had to move because they weren't you know I had to study anywhere but but uh, t- due to my friends and all the people I know I, I think it's a diversity of course there are a lot of hope but also people are you know they're not I, I don't think they're pretty sure that it's going to be that much job you know uh, it, you, you, you if you just google google server facilities you realize that when they're hoping for like 200 jobs it's probably going to be 20 right so yeah. uh so and and they are they are pretty sober thinking about this most of the people it, it's like the the political guys in the area they say it's going to be like 500 jobs and they say we don't think so and it and then they starting to doubt that it's ever going to happen some of them yeah so in in the uk to purchase yeah. land and to and to build uh, to, to build a new like kind of business center on it there's a whole load yeah. of planning permission and boxes that need to be ticked um yeah for such a small place like Horndog, is that the case is there like a mayor that's had to sign off on this or have google yeah. taken advantage of the fact that it's a small town they don't have to do much paperwork because it's small we can take advantage of this no this this business has been planned from the top of sweden actually right, because right. uh the ma- the mayor in the area of horndal is uh, he's connected to the to the government and uh i i think it it it, it comes from the government to him uh, and uh, and uh, because Google, uh, no, I'm speculating, but you know, Google they want to come to Sweden for two reasons. It's quite easy to buy property, and uh, we have loads of renewable energy. Because right. Google are all you know, they're 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 bragging about we're doing renewable. We're we're now it's it's uh, it's uh, carbon free uh sur- surfing so to speak and 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 of course that bullshit but um <laughs> i think that is one <laughs> one of the reasons that they want to go to sweden and the taxes for companies are very low as well yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah yeah so so there you have it uh, pontus you're 10 years younger than henrik uh, henrik i hope you don't mind me announcing that um <laughs> it's so <laughs> okay <laughs> pontus with, uh, with your experience <laughs> Were your experiences of growing up any different to Henrik? Is is Horndor the place that has changed at all in terms of um, the scenery over the years, or basically your childhood's very similar, even though there's a decade between you? Uh, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's the same, but it's also very different. I mean, you said. I, he's actually 13 years older than I am. Ah, right. So, okay. Uh, yeah. And and I mean the town see my beard. was, <laughs> yeah, but the town was really uh, tiny. I mean, Henrik was there, was around when they closed the steel mill in the late 70s, mm-hmm. and I was born when the place was really empty. 
So no, my experience as a child, it was just uh, uh, Horndal didn't have any um, like restaurants or any hairdressers or any banks or anything. Henrik was there when he was a kid. I mean, there was, uh, I mean, the stores. There were some different stores and and places to to go yeah. to. Uh, so, I mean, my experience was just that uh, I I was born in an empty small place, but I didn't know anything else uh, up until I mean, we had to move too. So we moved to the slightly bigger town, uh, just like uh, uh, twenty minutes from Horndal. Mm. Uh, and then I sort of realized that oh man uh the place i i was born in is like a uh weird ghost town where uh, so, and, and people just talking shit about horndogs like <laughs> it was sort of embarrassing to come from horndogs like it's just wow. uh you know stupid uh rednecks so place, um, yeah. yeah it was uh so it was it was definitely uh different but it's it's been i mean it's been amazing now i mean since we started the band, um, uh, it's it's been more. Hornell has really become like yeah, our home again, sort of. Really, I mean, you Absolutely. grow older and you start uh, connecting to the place, to your roots. So uh, I mean, it. I think it, the band has driven me closer to to my birthplace, and also, I mean, uh, to my brother. I think we've we've gotten a lot of closer just playing in this band so that's that's pretty amazing yeah i'm crying now yeah, so <laughs> it's cheesy but it's true no that's awesome yeah, i true. really like that that's cool man that's, yeah. that's really wicked yeah. um yeah like drinker is probably the most lyrically interesting album i've heard so far this year um there's a really really great lyric on horn does blood bad uh, that goes when nothing's left we're fighting each other killing for peanuts dying for crumbs Every penny, the one you have left, can disappear in a single theft. I actually yeah. feel like that's quite an accurate description of society's problem in general, not just in Horndale. I, I, I live in a place called Wolverhampton uh, in yeah. England, which has got about 250,000 population. So obviously much, much bigger than Horndale, but... And a football club. And a football club that is doing yeah. okay at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we... Similar to Horndal, I feel like Wolverhampton has been left on the side and forgotten yeah. about because everyone cares about London. Uh, yeah, I guess the yeah. same way that in Sweden, probably people only care about Stockholm and Gothenburg. Um, exactly. When you were writing these lyrics, did you want to write a record that could be understood by people that live close to Horndal, but also everyone who hears it? Because I actually feel like that lyric can be applied to society in general. Yeah, I th- I, I, you're right there. But uh, my goal when I was writing the lyrics is if I'm trying to be as specific as I can to just talk about Horndal, I know that this story uh, <laughs> will compel to, to, uh, to guys in Wolverhampton as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the same situation, the song Horndal's Bloodbody is actually about this the situation that we are dividing our countries right now. The urbanization, like I say, everybody cares about London, nobody cares about Wolverhampton. Same situation in Sweden, mm-hmm. same situation in America. For God's sake, the capital stuff that happened, the Capitolium yeah. stuff. Yeah. This, is, this is kind of uh, what happens. The, the, 
the right-wing extremist groups will grow in this situation and we the country will our countries will be more dangerous to live in i think one of the first things that really struck me about like drinker because it's a record i've had for a few weeks i've listened to a lot um is the album artwork and i actually and you did this on remains as well uh the album title is missing from the artwork and all you can see mm. on like drinker's artwork is this devouring skeleton in a lake filled with bones did you do you purposefully avoid putting the title on the artwork because you feel like the image is more impactful without the words does that make sense yeah yeah actually we do yeah uh i mean if i was to decide i almost would take out the logo too uh this is <laughs> <Yeah>. something uh, <laughs> i mean some I, I, there's so many like album covers where they just throw on the logo and there's like a huge um like the title in an ugly font i think that it's it's hard like text is pretty ugly usually so um um it it was on purpose yeah because i mean uh people will know what the album is called uh nowadays yeah it's not like uh in the old days we just flip through records at the record store you need to you need like the full info right there so um, yeah we tr- we tried to to keep that um since since the, the artwork is so busy it was the same on the on the previous record yeah because uh we really want like the the artwork to tell a story in itself and and uh it's sort of as as the previous album on on lake drinker there's like different parts of from horndal we have we have the factory that here is burning we have like the 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 black wheel you see on the right side with like uh that is sort of a a monument Mm. in horndal uh an old wheel from from the factory and you have the the deforestation area in the in the front so we try to 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 make the the album help us tell the story and 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 it shouldn't be bothered with text (laughs) (laughs) yeah because you're so right right, that that picture that album artwork for Lake Drinker tells the entire story before even listening to one lyric, which I think but album artwork doesn't do that enough these days, in my no. opinion. I'm in love with the album artwork for Lake Drinker almost as much as oh, I love the record itself. The artwork is so awesome. Thank you very Thank much. You. And it's, I mean, it's cool. I mean, finding talented uh, illustrators, I mean, it's hard uh, at first, but then, I mean that's so amazing. Uh, this guy, super talented illustrator from uh, Indonesia, that I just found like on Instagram, basically. Awesome. Um, yeah, and it was the same with the, with the, the on the on the previous record. But it's it's so amazing when you go on that trip. It's like okay, I'm gonna fucking vacuum uh, <laughs> Instagram for talented illustrators that have. And if you just sit there for a while, you just these amazing guys just mm. pops up we just sit there in their apartments all around the world doing amazing artwork so i yeah. just i mean just found this guy and i just wrote him like on like direct message on on instagram like man your your work is amazing and we have this idea and he just he's like yeah i understand uh i can do this um so <laughs> it took a couple of days i mean it's so there's so much work put into it because it just Basically, it's just everything is just dots. 
you know? Yeah. Pop, pop, yeah. Pop, 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 pop. And it becomes this crazy, huge uh, artwork that, that, tells, that tells a story. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, he's called... Uh, King Raya, Nebby. right? No, that, that was oh. the previous record. Come on. Okay, sorry. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Dave Levy Holland is called. Uh, mm-hmm. Look him up. He, he's wicked. Please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I've noticed that it tends to be if you're from Stockholm or around Stockholm, you will probably be influenced by Entombed. If you're from Gothenburg, you'll probably be influenced by At The Gates. Is there a particular reason for this? I think I have one. Uh, uh, and this is, uh, this, is, this is kind of a far fetch, but... Uh, when entombed is the more punkier sound, yeah, and uh, and uh, uh, the Gothenburg sound is more melodic, more slick. They're they're like more talented uh, in playing. You, you can you can see, maybe it's uh, like uh, if you if you're uh, if you're working class or if you're uh, like from from Goth- Gothenburg is a working class. Um, town right. and stockholm stockholm is more like you know the capital and uh, academic yeah academics as you can see with the far fetch is like beatles were the the working class band yeah and yeah rolling Roll, rolling stones were the art school boys yeah that's that's clever yeah yeah so, so maybe this is a situation here as well uh stockholm is academics and more more rock and punk and Gothenburg. Yeah, could could that's be a far fetch. No, that's interesting. Yeah. That that's really cool because it's just something I've noticed over the years of listening to death metal. That gen- usually, you know, it's yeah. Stockholm Wheel of Entombed and it's Gothenburg Wheel of yeah. At the Gates. So I was wondering yeah, why yeah. I, I don't. I off the top of my head, I can't remember any band from Stockholm saying At the Gates or for, or any band from Gothenburg saying Entombed. It's kind of strange. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Oh, yeah, but it's, I mean, that's, uh, that whole thing started like much later. Um, uh, of course, when, when the different scenes, we weren't a, a part of those scenes at all. I mean, uh, when they were going like in the, in the 90s, we were playing, I mean, uh, of course, we were <laughs> a much younger, but we were playing like different, we weren't playing uh, death metal at all. I mean, Hordal is the first metal band we, we've had. I mean, before we played like, uh, I mean, on different, this is the first band we've had together as well, Henrik and I, but I mean, we yeah. played like, uh, like indie rock bands and, and we played jazz, we played like arty rock kind of styles. And so in the 90s, um, I, I think this, this whole talk about uh, the huge difference uh, is sort Isn't of it- uh, uh, growing internationally. It's sort of a newer thing. Yeah. In a way, and yeah. uh, I mean, in the 90s, we, I mean, both Henrik and I, we started loving uh, uh, Entombed because I mean, Entombed in Sweden, they were like a main, they sort of, they sort of become almost like a mainstream thing right. uh, when yeah. they released like uh, Wolverine Blues or, or uh, To Ride Shoot Straight album. I mean, all of a sudden they were playing like um, on TV. That was crazy. Yeah. And, and they were yeah. touring with with hard, like yeah. uh, hard i mean i was a hardcore kid so i i was uh when i was a kid i mean the early refused albums i was a huge ah, of course, fan yeah. of and then i just knew that 
I just read on the on the back of the covers like okay, they I mean you, you liner notes. You just I was crazy about them. So like okay, they recorded Sunlight Studio, uh, and then I just saw that okay, here's another band that some friend is talking about called Entombed. They also recording there. Oh, this should be this should be good then. Uh, and and I just uh, I I was scared shitless listening to it, but it was just something about it. And 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 I, and I mean they were playing with hardcore bands. They were playing with like more like uh, indie bands as well. They were like uh, they were a big deal in Sweden. But I know when they toured like around the world, it was more like uh, in the scene mm. and underground and and pretty filthy. But for a mm. while in Sweden, they were like uh, not mainstream, but you know what I mean. You could see yeah. them on TV. They actually were a band. I, I, in a ga- not... they, they played in a game show. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, in a game, game show. show. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. They were like the, yeah. the, the, the game show band. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. I love that. That is amazing. That's not um, answering your question at all. No, no. I'm glad you, I'm glad you went Some there. Info. <laughs> um, my favorite track on Like Drinker is Raw. Um, ah, cool. It's got this halftime, sludgy, groove metal rhythm that runs through yep. the whole song. And then there's a moment where different towns and areas start getting mentioned. You even mentioned the Midlands, which is where I'm from, which I thought was awesome. Yeah. And um, were you yeah. trying to get across that big tech companies are coming for us all? Or is there something else that you're trying to tell <laughs> us here? Uh, the, the, the Actually, I was uh, researching a lot and I was just Googling for like uh, layoffs, uh, factory shutdown and uh, dead cities. Ah, so right, okay. uh, so 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 it, uh, the, the the cities that I'm screaming out had kind of the same experience that Horndal has in some ways. That's cool. Yeah, and uh, I, I don't know if you know that all these towns got to listen to the record one week before it was released because we opened it. Yeah, yeah, so I saw that. Yeah. So you could listen to it in Doncaster last week, for example. That is awesome. You see, like, I think that's one of the really cool things about Like Drinker. It's open to interpretation, right? So yeah. I got so yeah. I got something complete. I got a different message from Raw yeah. that you were trying to tell. And that's what I love yeah. about Like Drinker because it's open. Yeah. You can take it wherever yeah, sure. way you want, right? Yeah. It's, it's a nice interpretation. I will think about that. They're going to get us <laughs> you were, all. You were close. You were close, almost. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> um, something that I found really cool during the research that I've done on you guys, um, the steel mill that was closed down in Horndal 40 years ago, there was a play that was made by the locals of Horndal. Uh, and I believe, yeah. if I've done my research correctly, your father played the role of the devil being this per- the devil that comes in and closes down the steel mill. Um, Thank you. It's really interesting to me that it's come full circle now and you guys are writing about Google as the devil that are taking over and deforesting uh, an area of Horndal. Um, was that part of your motivation to start the band when you were coming together with the ideas of, of Horndal, the band? Was it that your dad had been such a big part of when the steel mill closed down so you felt like you should do your part now? Do you want to answer Pontus or should I? Yeah, I would. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would say absolutely. I think, I mean, with this band, it's sort of weird. I mean, 
we played a band many bands before this is the first time where like the the idea of the band came for like the the songs or the riffs or the 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 idea of what kind of music we play i mean this this uh theater play that was set up uh, written and set up and performed in protest uh, uh of of closing the the factory is uh it's, it's the big part of Horndal and and actually uh Henrik, I mean, you were you were a kid. You were like eight or nine years old, and you were actually in the play. I was in the play. Yeah. Like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, seven, eight, <laughs> yeah. seventy-nine, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's crazy. But I mean, I, I think it just took us so long to realize that ho- that whole story is is sort of like a perfect template for a for a metal band. I I, I think it was just a, I mean, a couple of years ago, Henrik and I were just talking about like, yeah, that theater play so cool i mean <laughs> i mean when i was a kid i was really sh- i was really ashamed when, yeah. when friends or like friends parents said like oh we know you your dad and and your mom <laughs> i mean our mom was in the play too they were in this <laughs> theater play i'm like ah, oh, my parents <laughs> play theater that's super embarrassing yeah. oh. <laughs> but then i mean you grow older it's like okay dad played satan who was coming to horndall to crush a steel mill and just uh, send the community to like an early grave. That's so metal, man. That is metal. Uh, so and, <laughs> and 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 Henrik and I, I mean, we've always lo- loved like heavy, aggressive music, but we haven't really had the uh, the chance of starting a band like that. It was always like like a moment where we were sort of like talking about that, laughing, and then just looking at each other, like let's let's start this band now. So yeah. so we did, and. Uh, I mean that whole Google thing. We didn't. We had no idea about that mm. when we started the band. But when that um, news uh, or those rumors came to us, it's like, okay, well, that's a that's a that's a perfect sophomore album right there. Exactly. And from the first album, uh, uh, there were really, you know, the music in that old theatrical play. It was like post hippie, you know. Uh, super bad music, uh, you know. Everybody was singing very bad, but but the lyrics. So I, we we just took the lyrics from that play and translated it and, and worked with it and used it for for the first record. So most of the lyrics yeah. on that one is uh, the songs that uh, my father and my mother were singing forty ah, years ago. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there's there's one song about a guy, like a worker in the steel mill called Bergström, and the lyrics is about him getting like molten steel in his face. It's like, <laughs> nice, okay. <laughs> how, how how metal is that? That is metal, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's but, very okay, metal. No pun, in, no pun intended. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's we just took that song and just translated. Uh, and uh, had Henrik just scream his lungs out. It worked. Yeah. I, I mean, at least I think so. I I mentioned earlier Entombed, and I think Entombed, you can tell, have been an influence on Horndal as a band. But I yeah, also yeah. feel like there's elements of sludge, uh, black metal, and also like really some progressive moments on the record as well. And um, would you say that you are primarily influenced by one band or are you constantly working from a mixture? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's a, it's a huge uh, mixture. I mean, uh, I mean, you, yeah, of course, yeah, and Tomb will be one of them. It's, it, yeah. and, and I think that's just because 
I mean, and we've we've listened to we've been fans of Entombed for like 25 years or something, yeah. uh, or more. I mean, I wasn't there for the left hand pass. I was, I mean, then I was like eight years old. But I mean, I picked up on that later. But I mean, they've been a, uh, with us so long, and and before that, I mean, both like huge fans of Black uh, Sabbath. Uh, awesome. Yeah. And actually, it was the other way around for me. I I I I, I discovered Entombed, and then I found Black Sabbath because they ah. like a cover of a Black Sabbath yeah. song. I've always done like the backwards sort of thing. Like, uh, yeah, I was a hardcore kid. I listened to like the scene in Umeå up in north, like with uh, Refuse, for example, and then I started listening to the older like American hardcore bands. But but then yeah. I mean, all through the nineties. Later 90s, I was sort of like really into noisy American indie rock, uh, which sort of led us to 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 recording with Steve Albini our de- debut EP. I mean, with just with Jesus Lizard, and uh, then on to like I mean his own band like Shellac, and then uh, like uh, for Neurosis. But uh, I mean, we listened to all kinds of music, uh, and and uh, I think yeah. For this record, actually, one one new thing is that I mean I have really young kids and I watch a lot of like children's TV shows with them, and and I've actually stolen a lot of like melodies uh, and riffs or or made riffs uh, uh, from like always in like children's TV shows when it's supposed to be spooky. It's always like you have that uh, those classics like death metal scale. Uh, yeah. to hear them. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's that's ba, 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 ba. <laughs> I can hear it now. I can hear it now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, now it's spooky, kids. And and uh, so I've been mean, listening to a lot of those. And like, there's a Swedish uh, um, classic uh, uh, children's book. There's always a TV show called Spöket, uh, Lilla Spöket Laban. And the, in the intro, it's like, that's a fucking great metal riff somewhere in there. So I just, um, <laughs> I record some of those men, uh, melodies in my in my phone, and then I make uh, riffs out of them. And the same, uh, my, my four-year-old has like an app with like a children's, uh, and uh, there's like a monkey playing a banjo <laughs> in the app. And some part when it's like oh I don't know how to play banjo and it plays like a banjo really bad and I was like that's fucking awesome that's like a great riff so I just <laughs> try to remember those uh, melodies and, and make riffs out of them r- riffs out of them so I mean inspiration comes from fucking everywhere and, and I mean we're, we're both like uh, big on like uh, jazz and uh, minimalist composers like uh, Steve Reich or um, yeah. Terry Riley, whatever it's uh, so. I mean, it, it could be like the the softest, uh, most stupid music ever. But if you hear something haunting in there, there's always uh, a way to make that into a fucking filthy riff. I've been really captured by the story that Lake Drinker tells, and like I was saying earlier, in some ways I can relate to it. Not exactly, um, considering mm. that Wolverhampton is a much bigger place than Horndog. Yeah, I, I do. I, I can still understand what it is that you're talking about, considering that Wolverhampton is quite a poor area. Um, yeah. Do you feel like raising awareness is the best thing that we, as a society, can do about the situation that we're in at the moment? Because if we're honest. It's up to the billion-dollar companies to change the world, really, isn't it? Um, and 
for us, we can just do our part, really. Yeah, but, you know, I'm thinking about what my parents, our parents did for 40 years ago. In that period, it was like uh, the go-to thing was to protest, to like say, this is not okay. Uh, What what they were doing, the the steel mill is shutting down and uh, then they went to the government. I, I can't see anything, uh, no protest like that in, in Sweden or uh, yeah, no protests nowadays are, is about other stuff. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the, the political landscape and, uh, you know, is, is so different now. So uh, I, I, I think that uh, what we could do as a band, we can like point on these problems and, and uh, like tell the story and tell what what people did for 40 years ago and maybe people can wake up and start to think about it because this path that we are going now is really dangerous yeah i think so yeah um henrik i am going to choose you for what we call the quick fire round um as we get to the end of the interview here, I've got 20 okay. questions I'm going to ask you uh, and I'm going to All time right. you and I'm going to see how quickly you can answer them. Uh, the quickest okay. time that we've had so far is one minute and 45 seconds. Um, okay. I'm choosing you, Henrik, because we don't usually get a lot of vocalists here. Um, All right. So I'm going to, we'll see how you do. Uh, when you're ready, I'm going to yeah. start timing and we'll see how quickly you can answer these questions. Okay, uh, I'm ready. Come on now, brother. Let's go. Don't disappoint me. (laughs) Let's go. Uh, Metallica or Iron Maiden? Iron Maiden. (laughs) Batman or Superman? Uh, Sorry? Batman Uh, or Superman? Uh, Batman. Uh, Tea or coffee? Coffee. Best time of the day? Uh, Midnight. Uh, Your favourite Horndoll song? Uh, Rossum. Uh, ACDC or Guns N' Roses? ACDC, of course. Favourite TV show? Uh, oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> the News. <laughs> uh, ketchup or mayonnaise? Uh, mayonnaise. Uh, your favourite band of all time? Thin Lizzy. Megadeth or Anthrax? Anthrax. Uh, who is your vi- <laughs> favourite villain? Uh, the Joker or Thanos? The Joker. <laughs> what was the hardest Horndoll song to write? Uh, rule. Uh, which period of music was better, the 80s or the 90s? The 90s. Uh, your favourite non-musical hobby? Uh, uh, I'm a carpenting, building stuff. Which band member is most fun to be around when you're in the studio? Uh, I, it's my brother. Uh, the Aww. best live show you've ever seen? Uh, I think it's uh, Thin Lissy in 1982. Awesome. Uh, best <laughs> live show you've ever played? Uh, I think that must be in Arvesta, the, the, the town next to, to Hornall. Awesome. Uh, in Flames or Dark Tranquility? In Flames. And finally, the best piece of advice you could ever give someone? Uh, uh, best piece of advice? Please. Just, bu- just buy it. <laughs> i tell you what, mate. Uh, you've done really well there because okay. just, okay. just coming just under two minutes, which is 
considering okay, I've okay. got a really strong accent and I'm hard to understand. <laughs> You've done very, very well there. Um, yeah. Guys, okay, uh, this meeting is just a couple of minutes from ending. So I want to thank you for your time. Uh, Lake Drinker is so awesome. Uh, really, thank you very really, much, really, really great heavy death metal record that I've been listening to non-stop now for a few weeks. So congratulations for that. Um, thank I you hope- so much. I hope that somewhere so down much. the road you can come to England. I can catch you in England and maybe we can get a beer at the bar. Um, this has yeah. been really cool and I really appreciate your time tonight, gents. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, Take care, thank guys. You. Thank, thank you. Have a good weekend. Thank you. See you guys. Uh, see you guys. Cheers. Thank bye. you. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.